It's good to be together together this morning uh, so that we can uh, worship in the presence of God as well as uh, read and hear the word preached. And so if you would please open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 22. And this morning's message comes to us from the first 16 verses of that chapter, Proverbs chapter 22. So we'll be reading the first 16 verses, uh, verses uh, 1 through 16. So let's uh, turn there, Proverbs 22. And let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Proverbs chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. A good man is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fall. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor." Drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. The mouth of forbidden women is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God. We give you thanks that your uh, wisdom is hidden from the wisest of the wise, and yet in your mercy and grace you have revealed your mind unto us in the scriptures, but you have not only given your wisdom to us in the scriptures, but you have also chiefly revealed it in Christ, who is your wisdom, wisdom incarnate. So we pray, Lord, that as you have united us to your Son, and you have given us the very mind of Christ, that you would, O Lord, by your grace, grant unto us uh, greater wisdom, greater insight, greater prudence, greater knowledge, so that you would fill us with your truth, that we would be equipped for every good work, uh, ultimately to bring you glory. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. What do we value most? That's an important question that we should regularly ask ourselves. I think for some we can say they think that money is the most important thing, or at least certainly it definitely tops the list. Everything that they do is geared towards the accumulation of money, whether it's seeking a good education so that then they can get a good job, uh, or rather, on the other hand, it's seeking to marry well so that they can ensure that they have a good supply of wealth, uh, whether it's finding the perfect job to make sure that they can have the lifestyle that they want, 
or perhaps maybe it's associating with the right people, the right organizations, and the right clubs so that they can network, so that they can have the most opportunity as possible, so that they can uh, get more wealth. And yet Solomon gives us a very, very different picture when he counsels his sons in chapter 22 with this first verse where he says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. How is it and why would Solomon say that a good name is to be desired more so than wealth? Well, in general, some people throughout the ages have noted that your reputation is one of the most important things that you could have. In fact, in a famous series of lines from Shakespeare's Othello, he puts the following words into the mouth of one of the villains, Iago, where he says, Good name in man or woman, my dear Lord, is the immediate jewel of their souls. Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, nothing. Twas mine, tis his, and has been slave to thousands. But he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. What he says is he says, you can have my purse. You can have my money. You can take it from me. It was mine. Now it's yours. Before it was mine, it it was somebody else's. But he who robs me of my good name, on the other hand, makes himself richer and makes me poorer. In other words, you've only got one reputation, and so you have to be very cautious with it. And so Solomon here certainly has reputation in view. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. But I don't think he merely has reputation in view here, as we see it encapsulated in Shakespeare's words from Othello. Uh, Remember, the book of Proverbs is on a trajectory, if you can imagine it like a bullet fired, where the bullet is fired in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And as the trajectory of that round arcs and finds its target in the New Testament, as it's revealed in the person and work of Christ, the very wisdom of God, what Solomon's counsel is telling us is a good name is to be desired more than gold. And in this case, that name is on the trajectory of the promise of the gospel. So that good name is ultimately the good name of Christ. And if we possess Christ, then we possess his good name. And if we possess his good name, then we are going to have a right assessment as to what is most important in life, whether it's that good name, the good name of Christ, and then asking ourselves, do we wear that name well, or do we desire wealth over that good name? And so what Solomon does is he takes his sons and he backs them up and he says, let's take a look at the question of wealth. What's more important, a good name that we possess in Christ, or is it wealth? And so in the first section, what he does is he talks about God's sovereignty over wealth, which will be our first point. And then secondly, uh, in the latter half of this section, he explains how we should seek to handle wealth. So God's sovereignty over wealth, and then secondly, how it is that we should handle it. So in the first nine verses, Solomon addresses the question, 
or at least he addresses the issue of God's sovereignty over wealth. Because I think what often happens is that as we look at the world, our physical eyes dominate the way that we look at the world. And there's a sense in which that's perfectly understandable. You know, we look around and we see things. We look around and we see the wealthy. We see the poor. We also see a certain cause and effect in the world. If you work hard, that's the cause, then the effect will be you will accumulate wealth. And we observe this with our eyes. If you don't work hard, well, then you're not going to obtain wealth. And yet Solomon gives us a bird's eye view. He places us upon the perch, if you will, of heaven, and he allows us to see the world from the throne of God. And he reminds us, don't be fooled by what your eyes see. Look at the world through the eyes of faith. And he says in verse 2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. So what he's saying is he's saying, look at the world through the eyes of faith. It's not just simply that the the, the hard-working people gain all the wealth. Ultimately, wealth and poverty come from God himself. It's not ultimately about how hard you work, but rather how much do you trust God with your life? As he's the one who possesses all the wealth. He's the one who sovereignly distributes it. Remember the words of David in the Psalms, Psalm 50, verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I've often prayed, O Lord, could you send a few cows my way? Because I'm, I'm a little short. It would be great. But how often do we give thanks to the Lord for the wealth that we do possess. How often do we do that? You know, I I think sometimes what we can say to ourselves is, well, in comparison to my neighbors, I don't think that I'm all that wealthy because we know of people that have means. But I've almost done reading a book, and in many ways it's a tragic book, It's about the cobalt mining industry uh, in Africa, particularly in the Congo, and the utter poverty in which these people mine cobalt, men, women, and even children mining cobalt, where they will work in a dangerous mine that they have carved out of the earth and tunnels that are inadequately supported with the threat of cave-ins always uh, looming above them. And uh, they will work 10, 12 hours a day in the suffocating heat with a lack of oxygen in the mines, all for six to seven, eight dollars a day. So on that scale, we are profoundly wealthy, immensely wealthy. How often do we give thanks to the Lord for that wealth? Or do we think, hey, I I rolled up my sleeves. Uh, I, I I got my hands dirty. This wealth is because of my hard work. I don't want to diminish the importance of hard work, but ultimately what Solomon is saying is wealth comes from the Lord. Keep that in mind, he says to my his sons. 
But at the same time, he also then goes on to instruct his sons about the dangers of wealth. I think wealth is often like a hot burning fire, which depending upon how you use it, it can be for great benefit or it can be a great danger. If we build a fire and we build it in a proper way, in a a proper containment area, and then stand at a distance and we use the proper implements, we can use fire to great benefit. We can cook our food. We can warm our homes. uh, We can burn debris. We can clear a field. But if we're incautious with that fire, we can burn our food. We can burn down our homes. We can start what seems like an unstoppable fire. We can cause great harm, destruction, and death. Well, the same, I think, principles applies to money. And that a wise person sees the dangers that are associated with it. Solomon says in verse 3, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. They just say, look at all the money. Look at all the money. Where can I get more? They don't realize that money is like that hot fire. It's a sense in which you can use it, but you've got to keep it at a distance. I think in this respect, what Solomon is ultimately saying is that the wise person does not pursue wealth for the sake of wealth. Rather, first and foremost, the most important thing in the, in the life of a wise person is pursuing God. Verse 4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Notice how Solomon inverts it. He doesn't say first pursue wealth and then God. He says fear the Lord Pursue God, and then wealth comes as a result. Now, this is a general observation. We don't want to fall into the health and wealth gospel. Just love God, and you're going to become rich. That's not what Solomon is saying. He's simply saying, you put the Lord first in all things. Never turn mammon. Never turn money into an idol. But instead, he says, the foolish, all they see is the money. All they see is the lure. All they see is the attraction of wealth. Well, if you pursue God, or if you pursue the idol of money, there are undoubtedly going to be different outcomes, which is what Solomon says. You know, he says in verse 5 that the pursuit of wealth for the sake of wealth is a path marked by sin, one that the wise definitely avoid. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. I can't help but think the language is not the same language in the original Hebrew, but I can't help but think here that when he speaks of thorns and snares, that he's calling back to Genesis chapter 3, where the, the result of sin is thorns and thistles. He says the path to wealth is filled with thorns and snares. It's not automatically sinful, but it can be a perilous one. Oftentimes in the pursuit of wealth, our eyes and our hearts want more than what God wants to give us. And so we try, therefore, to extend our reach 
by borrowing money and living beyond our means. And we become a slave to our lender. Proverbs 22, 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. I'm sure you've heard the song back from the 50s, I believe. You know, you've sold your soul to the company store. You can't quit. Some of the best advice I've ever heard uh, came from uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney to where he said that when he was growing up, his father told him, perhaps more colorfully than I want to report, so I won't report it entirely, but he said, always keep six months' salary in the bank. And he says, why is that? So that you can tell your boss to take a hike if you want to and walk out. But if you're a slave to money, if you're a slave to wealth, then not only are you going to pursue money at all costs, but then you're going to overextend yourself and get into borrowing situations where you are trapped. And you can't quit. You can't walk out. Now, I don't think Solomon is saying that we should never borrow. But we should be very cautious and ask ourselves, am I borrowing for the right reasons? I can remember sitting across from a student uh, and uh, the student told me, I believe that the Lord has called me to seminary. And I said, "I, I, I have doubts. I was the one that signed the checks for student loans at that particular point. And this particular student had nearly $180,000 worth of school debt and still wasn't finished and was getting to borrow more. And I said, as a pastor, you ain't going to make this kind of money. My advice to you would be to get out of seminary, get a job, work down your debt, and then think about coming back. The student ignored me. Because he was convinced the Lord has called me to this. I said, that's a a pretty presumptuous uh, assumption based upon the amount of money that you are borrowing and based upon your lack of long-term ability to pay it back. Are we overextending ourselves and are we sinfully pursuing ends that maybe the Lord hasn't given us because we're chasing the money? And in fact, within the context of the overall book of Proverbs, how this particular counsel is so important in Solomon's advice to his sons is that God saw the position of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28 as that if they pursued him first, they would be the ones lending the money to the nations. But if they did not pursue him first, they would find themselves borrowing from the nations, borrowing from the Gentiles because God would turn off the spigot of the money. Again, I'm not saying that if you borrow money, it's automatically sinful, but we have to ask ourselves, what are my motives? What am I pursuing? Do I recognize that God is the one who gives wealth as well as gives poverty? God has given me my current station in life. Am I content with what he has given me so that I will worship him and him only pursue him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or am I pursuing money? 
I think at the end, what Solomon is, is doing here, Christ repeats in his own teaching in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or, of course, in those memorable words of the King James translation, ye cannot serve God and mammon. It's one or the other, Solomon says. It's one or the other, says Christ. So how is it then that we can ensure that we don't trade God for money? How is it that we can ensure that we don't bow at the idol of mammon? Remember, it's only the grace of God and the gospel of Christ that can turn our hearts away from idols. Only when God raises us from death to life through the Spirit, and gives us the free gift of faith, will we have the eyes, will we have the ability to turn away from our idols and give our love, affection, and devotion exclusively to Christ. But even then, even as believers, even as those who have had our eyes opened, we may still struggle with the siren call of our idols, in this case, mammon. And this is why I think we require a continual diet of God's grace in Christ to keep us satisfied. I think what happens is that the problem with idolatry of any form, but in this case with money, is that we're trying to fill the Christ-shaped hole in our heart with something that just does not fit. It will not fill the void. It will not fill the void. And as long as we try to substitute the desire for Christ with something else, we're always going to be running, but never arriving. We'll always be eating, but we'll never be full. We'll always be drinking, but we'll always be thirsting. We'll always be striving, but never achieving. We'll always be wanting, but never being satisfied. But if we seek that contentment in Christ, he gives us peace. He gives us rest. As Jesus said in John six thirty five, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's Christ who gives us that satisfaction and that peace. So that we can tell ourselves, it's okay, I don't need the money. God has taken care of me. And if we have the eyes of faith, if our hearts are directed to loving Christ, then we will be able to see money for what it is. Not an end, not a goal, but a tool. A tool to be used. Solomon says in verses 8 and 9, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. You see, the righteous don't see money as an end so that all they want to do is hoard it. You know, one of the things I've heard wealthy people say is, what is it that you think that you need to achieve once you've already made a million? They say, well, it's the next million that I'm seeking to make. It's never enough. It's never enough. And so they sow injustice 
They reap calamity. And Solomon says, upon that kind of a pursuit, that sinful, idolatrous pursuit of money, God's judgment will fall upon them. But on the other hand, notice what is it that the wise do with money? They give of their bounty freely to others. They give it away. Because the wise see money as a tool. And thus they're willing to share it with those who are in need. But Solomon addresses one last thing when he talks about God's sovereignty over money. Is he answers the question as to how is it that we can have the right attitude towards wealth. He says in verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old and he will not depart from it. In other words, teach your children early. This is not to say, this is not, remember, the book of Proverbs is not a series, a collection of airtight promises as if it were a formula, like a cupcake recipe. So long as you put in all of the ingredients, mix it, and, and cook it properly, then everything will turn out all right. Unless, of course, you don't follow the recipe. The other day I cooked some brownies, didn't follow the recipe, did not, it was not a pretty sight. The brownies overcooked by an hour. <laughs> I could have used them as paver stones in the backyard. What Solomon is saying here is he's saying, start them off early. Teach them early what's most important. And I can promise you this. One of the things that child, a child does not understand is the value of a dollar. And not only the value of a dollar, but what's more important, the dollar or the Lord. And so when he says, train up a child in the way he should go, Solomon in the latter portion of this this section here, in verses 10 through 16, addresses this issue. How is it that we should train up a child? What is it that we should teach them? How should we pass the wisdom on to the next generation? And so I would say that if there's a center of gravity in this particular passage, verses 1 through 16, if there's a fulcrum, if there's a foundation, it's here in verse 11. And this is what we have to pass on to children. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. This, I I would suspect, drives us to ask the question, how do we have purity of heart? Again, purity of heart only comes through Christ and the grace of the gospel. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That purity, that holiness of heart only comes through Christ and the gospel. Which is why the author of Hebrews later on in the New Testament in Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a heart of full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and, by, uh, uh, and our bodies washed with pure water. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. What Solomon is saying is he's saying, O son... Have a pure heart. And the only place you can have a pure heart, the only source of the purity of heart comes from Christ in the gospel. If you have Christ, you have a friend in the king. 
And so you have to be set on the right path. You have to be planted firmly in Christ so that you can know how to handle this wealth. And so with the corrective lenses of the gospel over our sin-clouded eyes, we can see clearly so that we know how to live. We'll have the right perspective. And I promise you we'll make uh, short work of it, but Solomon, I think, gives six different ways that we can keep our eyes focused upon the right thing. Six different ways. The first of which is this, is that the wisdom of Christ helps us to know, writes Solomon, the wisdom of Christ helps us to know when to cut certain people out of our lives. To put it in the simplest of terms, there are some people that are a good influence upon us and there are some that are a bad influence upon us. Verse 10, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. Yes, we're supposed to love everyone. Yes, we should uh, show people mercy, kindness, and love. But there are some people, because they are so trapped in the world of idolatry and that they love their idols more than God, that if we associate with them, we will become like them. And so Solomon says, you got to be willing to cut certain people out of your life, not associate with them. What what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 6.14? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship light with darkness? You know, if if money is our chief goal in life, then often it's the case that we don't care about how we make the money so long as we make it. Are we taking advantage of people? Are we inadvertently or perhaps overtly stealing from people? You know, it's like one of the things that I had to tell my sons is my son said, Dad, I want to I want to try day trading. Well, okay. Um, So we talked about day trading. And I said, you have to ask your motives in that. Because day trading, I think, is a lot like a a roulette wheel. <laughs> let's spin it. Let's roll the dice and see what comes up. Did we get seven or did we get snake eyes? And that's just gambling talk. I've never gambled in my entire life. I've just, I've just seen it in the movies. You know, but are, are, are you day trading? And, and how moral is that? Maybe you shouldn't hang around people who, who day trade depending upon how they go about it. Maybe you need to cut those people out of your life. Maybe you shouldn't associate with certain types of business people because maybe they're making their money illegitimately. Second, the wisdom of Christ reminds us that no matter how impressive wealth may seem, it's fleeting. God knows all and sees all. Proverbs twenty two twelve. the eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but overthrows the words of the traitor. In other words, Solomon's saying, no matter how wealthy a person may seem, no matter how impressive they might seem, even if they acquire it by illegitimate and sinful means, the Lord keeps watch over all knowledge. I'm not saying that the super wealthy acquire their, all of their money 
by sinful means. But I am saying this, that all too often people think that wealth is all there is, and so they make that their idol. And I want to tell them, you realize there ain't no U-Hauls to heaven. You can't haul and take the money with you. The Rockefellers, the Carnegies, in our days, Musk, Bezos, Zuckerberg, they can't take their money with them. It's fleeting. It's fleeting. So often it's the case that the, the wealthy think that nobody sees their business dealings. They can operate and do these things in secret. But Solomon says, son, it's all fleeting. God knows and sees all. And he will hold everyone accountable for how they conduct themselves. Third, the wisdom of Christ teaches us that everything that we do, regardless of whether we're pursuing uh, income or whether we are working or whether we're educating or whether we're resting or recreating, whatever it is that we do, that we should do all things as unto the Lord. Do everything unto the Lord, Solomon says. He says in verse 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. And he says, sometimes what happens is that people are lazy and they give all kinds of excuses when it comes to wealth. Don't be lazy, Solomon says. You know, so often in this case, it's the person who is fearful of the unlikely, you know, the unlikely danger. You know, I can't help but think that 2213 is all about chicken little. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. I can't go outside. I can't work. He's saying, no, don't be lazy. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So instead of being slothful towards, uh, towards wealth or trying to get it by illegitimate means because you are too lazy, work hard. Work hard as unto the Lord. Do all things for the glory of the Lord. Fourth, when Solomon... Solomon here warns his sons that sinful relationships fueled by sexual desire can be a cause of financial ruin. Guard your heart, he says. Verse 14, the mouth of a forbidden woman is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. And the irony in all of this is that Solomon didn't heed his own counsel. You know, what do we read in 1 Kings eleven four? For when Solomon was old and his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. You know, we, sh- we, we should say or could have said to Solomon, his physician, heal thyself. But here he's saying it's still true. We shouldn't discount it just because Solomon failed. It's still true when he tells his son, be careful because in the pursuit of, of, of lust, in the pursuit of, of, you know, irresponsible, illegitimate, and immoral relationships, you can waste and spend a lot of money that way. Fifth, the wisdom of Christ teaches us that once again, we have to start our covenant children early in the school of godliness. So again, he's telling his son, start early with your children. 
He says in verse 15, folly is bound up in the heart of the child of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now, discipline can take many forms, although I think Solomon has corporal punishment in view. But here, as parents or grandparents, we should not seek to insulate our children and grandchildren from failure. Because if we do, how are they going to learn? You know, so often it's the case. I've talked and I've heard parents in various circumstances say, I don't want my children to fail. Oh, they messed up, but I have to try to clean up the mess. You know, I, I, I have to protect them so that they don't, they don't feel the crushing weight of failure. And I often say this, and the wife and I over the years have said this, uh, small failures in life can be incredible opportunities to learn. So sometimes you just have to let your children fail and let them face the consequences of it. And it's okay. Because if they learn failure in the small things then that'll prepare them to be able to deal with failure in the big things. But if we seek to insulate them from these things, then we what we're doing is we're failing to teach them the consequences of sinful actions. We're failing to teach them the consequences of foolish actions. Something may not be sinful, but it may be foolish. And so we have to train them. We have to discipline the children. We have to be willing to say, it's okay. You're going to have to fail here and suffer the consequences. I think small failures and consequences in life can be the opportunity for some of the greatest lessons that we can learn, especially when those learning opportunities go hand in hand with the gospel of Christ, where we teach them and we show them here Seek forgiveness in Christ here. Seek to make things right in this failure. Pray to Christ that he would give you wisdom. Sixth and finally, the wisdom of Christ, I think, gives us the proper perspective that we need, writes Solomon, so that we can hold wealth in its proper place. Verse 16, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or give to the rich will only come to poverty. He says, if all you're seeking is money, then all you'll end up is being poor. Either because you'll never be satisfied or your fortune will be lost or you'll die and you'll lose it anyway. And then you stand before uh, the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for your sinful and idolatrous ways. Make money your God and you will reap the, 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 the fruit of that crop. Whereas if you make God your God, and understand by that it's just a human way of speaking, if God reaches out by his grace and gives us the eyes of faith so that we can love him, then we will hold wealth in its proper place. Beloved, in the end, I hope we can see why a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches it's the good name of Christ. A good name is, is, that is not ultimately our own. Rather, it is given to us by God in Christ, but we should desire with all of our hearts to wear that name well and to pursue that name in everything that it means. St. Augustine once said, where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Where your heart is, there is your happiness. Our chief treasure in life has to be Christ. 
Because in the end, this is what Christ himself taught. Matthew six twenty one. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. May our treasure never be in mammon. May our treasure always be in Christ. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have blessed us with so much material wealth in this country and uh, so much material wealth even in our lives. Even the poorest of us, O Lord, is still so wealthy in comparison with those who are in poverty in other parts of the world. We pray, O Lord, that as we pursue the Christian life, that we would not pursue wealth, that we would not sinfully try to uh, pursue amounts of money that you have not given us, that we would not sinfully borrow money, seeking to extend ourselves to ends that you have not given. Oh, Father, first and foremost, we pray that you would fill our hearts with a love for Christ, that you would grant us contentment in him, and that help us to see that everything else in this life simply does not matter. It does not matter how big of a house we own. It does not matter, O oh Lord, how much money is in our bank account. It does not matter, O oh Lord, what kind of car we drive. All of these things are fleeting, and all of these things will ultimately rust They will turn to dust. They will be forgotten. They will be destroyed. And that the only thing that matters, O Lord, is you. With you, O Lord, as our compass and as our guide and as our chief treasure in life, we pray that you would give us a proper attitude towards wealth and towards money. That we would use it as a tool that we would give thanks to you, O Lord, for all of the wealth that you have given us, that we would not only use it as a tool, but we would be wise with our use of our money, ultimately in the end recognizing that a cattle on a thousand hills all belong to you and that we are but stewards of your wealth and your resources. And so help us, O Lord, to use it well for the furtherance of your kingdom, for the extension of mercy to those who are in need, And yes, O Lord, for the provision of our needs. And for this, we are grateful for how you care for us. Make us wise. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.